It's March 25th, 1843, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. It was meant to take three years to build and ended up taking 18. Its budget spiralled out of control. It killed people who dug it and its designer nearly drowned in it. But it was on this day that the first tunnel under the Thames connecting Rotherhithe with Wapping, indeed the first tunnel built under a navigable river anywhere in the world, finally opened to the public. And one of the biggest stumbling blocks in getting the thing off the ground in the first place was under the ground. fear. Under the ground, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was actually that people were fearful because the underground realm was usually seen as a place where you kept slaves or prisoners or the dead. And as part of the tunnel's preview, there was this huge banquet that was held in a completed section and the whole spectacle was designed to convince people of the tunnel's safety. Specifically, would so many notable people go into this thing if they, they were putting their lives at risk? Mm. Well, before you picture yourself enjoying this banquet, it's worth knowing that there was an ongoing problem with sewage water <laughs> seeping through the top of the tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. And the whole reason that the banquet was being staged in the first place was to help restore public confidence because there had been so many floods and cave-ins during its construction. So I can't imagine that they were digesting their dinner very well as they sat there around that <laughs> banquet table. OK, so the tunnel came about as the concept of Mark Brunel... Uh, father of Isambard Kingdom, and just as a side note, I just love the social mobility inherent in that. You wouldn't expect someone whose name is Isambard Kingdom to have a dad called Mark, but anyway, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, Mark, to be fair, Mark's middle name was Isambard as well. Uh, Mark Brunel uh, had been inspired by watching a shipworm, the story goes, in nature, you know, making a little circular tunnel in a piece of discarded wood, and thought... Aha, we could apply this to underground tunnels. Let's build two circular tunnels under the Thames, the busiest river in the world at that point, with 13,000 boats passing on it every day. People said if you wanted to get from one side of the Thames to the other, you could just literally walk across the boats. That's how busy it was. Yeah, because when you read about the laborious process of digging out this tunnel over all these years, your first thought is, well, why didn't they just build some more bridges? But the reason was that you had all these tall sailing ships that needed access to docks up and down the River Thames. So until the likes of Tower Bridge, you know, bridges that can be open to let traffic pass through, there was no choice but to try and pursue these underground routes. They had actually tried at the start of the 1800s they used these Cornish miners who were supposedly you know the the best miners in the world but as they were digging they were getting these constant cave-ins because rather than the the harder materials that they'd been digging in Cornwall in the Thames you had this soft silt and you also had the enormous pressure of the Thames at high tide it was really really dangerous and then Mark Brunel inspired by this ship and thing came up with his idea of the tunneling shield which was this big iron it looked kind of like scaffolding it it was had 36 separate metal cells in it and the idea was that the miners could stand in the cells with the metal scaffolding taking all the pressure above them and to the sides and then as they tunneled forward slowly they would disassemble and then reassemble the front of the shield that little bit further every time so they were being protected while they were mining and that was the huge innovation that changed everything even though it was still really dangerous and still several people died. And what they ended up with was a tunnel that was uh, made of two 1,200 foot long arched passageways that were connected by a wall of open arches, which became a sort of shopping arcade. 
Um, and, you know, it was a destination in itself. People went down there to have a look around and see this marvel that you could walk through. Yeah, well, people had been looking at it for 18 years before it opened because it was such a long <laughs> process to build it. They built a vertical tunnel first before the horizontal one and then kept adding bricks on top of it until it sank. I mean, you have to remember that all of this was done without petrol engines or electricity. This was done with manpower and horsepower and steam. And then it was so dangerous down there because, as Rebecca alluded to, the miners were getting showered in sh- literally, that they did two-hour shifts because that's all their health could take. And this spectacle was something you could, as a member of the public, go and pay a shilling to go and watch people build, which 800 wow. people did per day. It's, it's inconceivable that any sane person would want to spend a single second in that tunnel. I mean, not only have you got the sewage, but also the danger, because there were several small floods, mm. but there were two big ones. First one was in May 1827, and it was actually repaired by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who was 19 when this project started, and he was sort of working as his father's assistant, which meant he spent a lot of time on site. He came up with the idea of using a diving bell to lower thousands and thousands of sacks of clay over the breach mm. rather than trying to fix it from the inside. And that actually worked. Mm. Nobody died. But he nearly died in the second flood in 1828. It was a miner who found a hatch for him to escape through. Given how long it was taking, wits at the time mocked it as the great bore, which kind of prefigures Elon Musk's uh, boring company. Um, but prior to the grand opening, there was a an impromptu visit visit from uh, Queen Victoria. Oh, I knew you um, were limbering up for something. Did she write about it in her diary, Arian? (laughs) She did, actually. Did she? Oh, look, you can hear him like octave hopping already. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) And did it sound a little something like this? It did did sound a little something like this. She said, the people received us most kindly and cheered tremendously. We then entered the tunnel, which is wonderful, (laughs) and gave one rather an uncanny feeling. It goes down a great way. I'm, I'm sorry. Why did she write about so much? <laughs> she anyway, it was it was it was both excessively hot, both going and returning. Uh, but people saying God save the Queen to her when she was down there, so that must have cancelled out the uh, the impact of it smelling like poo. <laughs> <laughs> well, she went she went twice, didn't she? So she went to see it being built, and she went when it opened. Was- oh man, how did I not find that? Oh God, Ollie, why did you mention a second incident? <laughs> Looking it, it up now, <laughs> it was essentially a big shopping arcade by then, as you said. And within um, fifteen weeks of this day, when it opened finally, one million pedestrians had each paid one penny to walk through. Two million had in the first year, which was essentially the entire population of London. But it was Mm. a massive financial failure um, because it had to be Mm. bailed out for £246,000. That's not adjusted. That's in Victorian money. £246,000 after it was closed for eight years. The total budget ended up being £614,000. The original estimate had been £160,000. So, you know, those two million people paying a penny each is 20 grand. So (laughs) it went nowhere near covering its cost. Yeah, and so a visitor in those early days certainly wouldn't have got the impression that the project was cash-strapped. We do have one record from an, uh, one early visitor, American traveller William Allen Drew. He described the entrance rotunda as being built of marble, decorated with frescoes, statues, artworks, and that there was a massive organ that was built in that would serenade the passengers as they walked down the stairs. And then when hmm. you got to the tunnel itself, it was lined, as you say, with double alcoves, hosting all kinds of shops, including, he said, a souvenir 
souvenir shop where you could purchase mementos that were labeled, you know, bought in the Thames Tunnel. Sort of like, you know, I went to Oromolinos and all I got was a stupid T-shirt at the time. <laughs> but it did also have a seedy side and the first crime, which was a robbery, was reported two years after it opened. Um, yeah, because there were loads of places to hide, weren't there, and steal pocket watches and stuff. Yeah, and I think it also became a place where you could procure prostitutes. So it sort of had this very literal kind of underworld thing that developed. Which Brunel was not keen on, uh, Brunel Senior. <laughs> uh, he was knighted for his efforts in creating the tunnel, but realising that it was being frequented by pickpockets and prostitutes, decided, decided to relaunch it in 1852 with a fancy fair. Hmm. There were fire eaters, strongmen, dancing horses, Chinese singers, minstrels from Montreal, Indian dancers and Ethiopian serenaders. It, it sort of uh, excited the public somewhat, but ultimately people were getting less and less interested to visit. And in the end, it ended up being sold to the East London Railway Company at a loss uh, for £200,000 uh, and is still part of the new cross to Wapping line. But I, I think that's impressive. I think that that sort of speaks to its quality, right? That, OK, it didn't survive as a passenger tunnel, but it did survive as a place that you could send human traffic, albeit in the form of trains rather than, than pedestrians. Yeah, and there are now 23 tunnels under the Thames, and most of them have been built in uh, a fashion inspired by this. So it was hugely influential. It depends, you know, how you count the money invested, doesn't it? It was a failure on its own terms. It was supposed mm. to be for horses. They couldn't even get the road up to the street so the horse could get down it. But, you know, if that hadn't been built, then I guess the Brits wouldn't know how to build a tunnel, and that turned out to be rather lucrative. Mm. And Brunel actually sustained some pretty significant injuries during this incident. A big piece of timber fell on his leg as he was trying to get out, so he had a knee injury. And then he also had what they think were probably internal injuries from being sort of swept along on the tide of water. And so he ended up convalescing in Brighton for months, and then understandably he wanted to scale back his involvement in this project. But that enabled him to go on and do his own thing, so during this time he went on to become the chief engineer at Great Western Railway and got involved in all the projects that we know him for which he might not have done if he had stayed you know sort of tied his father's apron strings on this but it turns out being in a near-death accident is a great motivator to pursue other opportunities. Do you think his dad was like what suspension bridge? Bridge? Old? (laughs) (laughs) Next time makes it even more ironic obviously that you know the strongest man turned out to be this mild-mannered jewish school teacher love the show support the show patreon.com slash retrospectors part of the acast creator network hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.